0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, the Accountability
1: Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Season. I'm Chef Plum.
3: And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken.
2: Juneteenth is just days away. Coming up this hour, producer Catrice Claudio speaks with author Nicole A. Taylor about the first cookbook devoted to recipes for Juneteenth.
3: Plus, it's awards season in the food world, and we have a local family to cheer for. Later in the hour, you'll hear a conversation with Chef Macarena Ludenia Jimenez.
2: Her family's restaurant Cora Cora, the spot for Peruvian food in Connecticut, was nominated for a James Beard Award.
3: And New England Emmy nominations are in. I'm going to celebrate this guy.
2: Who, me? That's
3: right. (laughs) (laughs) But first, we want to bring in producer Catrice Claudio for a little behind the scenes.
2: Hey, Catrice.
3: Hey, chef. I don't think I've seen a producer more excited to talk with a guest than when you were preparing to talk with Nicole Taylor about Juneteenth.
0: I was excited primarily because I got into food media to tell stories about people who looked more like me that came from my backgrounds, and I didn't see it anywhere. And so I decided to be, you know, a little beacon of excitement for myself and I started finding ways to incorporate that need into my everyday creative process and into my works. And so to see a person like Nicole do that very thing as a black food writer, it was a gift we were able to have a cookbook on the shelves that allowed Juneteenth to take up space and be part of American celebration, which is something that is not happening yet, but it's beginning to become more and more intentional. And so for her to gift us with not only a collection of recipes, but a reason to celebrate in a rubric on how to celebrate for everybody and make it more accessible really felt like a great Window to like connect the rest of America to the part of the culture that they may not always feel comfortable or welcome into and making it more identifiable, approachable, and
2: delicious.
4: <laughs>
2: You're electric, Teresa. <Catrice.
0: laughs> Thank you.
3: Well, let's get into it.
0: Nicole A. Taylor is a James Beard Award-nominated food writer, cookbook author, and producer. She's the author of three books, The Up South Cookbook, The Last OG Cookbook, and most recently, Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black Celebrations. Nicole, welcome to Season. Thanks for having me. As we are leaning into Juneteenth season's coming, we know that this holiday has been celebrated in Texas for centuries. It has recently become a federal holiday on a national level. So parts of our country are just now being introduced to this concept of celebrating Juneteenth as a national holiday. Can you tell us a little bit more about Juneteenth and how celebrations evolved over time?
1: Yeah, on June 19th, 1865, more than Two years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, more than two hundred thousand enslaved black Texans found out they were free. Literally on the island of Galveston, General Granger rolled in and made the announcement and all over the country, or more so all over the South enslaved people found out at different moments about their newfound freedom. So at that moment, people rejoiced. But really, it wasn't until the following year when you started seeing what some would call traditional Juneteenth celebrations, meaning the outdoor barbecues with whole pigs or whole beef or the fried fish or the watermelon, the celebrations that involve dance, Mm -hmm. music, and family. So over time, you started to see Black Texans use Juneteenth as a way to, you know, put their stick in the ground to say that we're free and we're here.
0: And that's amazing because that's such a pivotal part of American history that really changed the landscape of how we engage each other, including in celebration. So for some Americans, they may perceive that Juneteenth doesn't belong to them, that it's not theirs to celebrate. How are they encouraged to participate and observe the holiday?
1: For both Black Americans and white Americans, there is always that question of should I be celebrating Juneteenth? And to speak to um, African-Americans, yes, you should be celebrating Juneteenth. No, you may not be from Texas or you may not even have Southern roots, but we are all tied or connected through the African diaspora. Even mm-hmm. if you are not from America, Juneteenth is a part of our story mm-hmm. of survival, of, of persisting. And i like to tell the story about Juneteenth that not only in Texas, Juneteenth is a big holiday, but due to the great migration, Black people moved to places like Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Black people moved to Oakland. They moved to Brooklyn, New York, or they even moved to Washington, D.C. So there are people who have Texas roots all over the country who make sure they celebrate Juneteenth. And with that, that means that they invite family and friends who may not even be from Texas, so they've heard that word before. So mm-hmm. we are tethered to freedom. And for non-Black Americans wondering, like, what am I supposed to do on Juneteenth? I say to them always, this is a part of the American story. This is a part of our liberation of the very weathered story of American freedom and American equity. And there's so many things that you can do on the Juneteenth holiday. Yes, I want you to open up Watermelon and Redbirds and make a delicious meal for your family. But there are also things you can do like supporting Black-owned businesses. Mm. And in the front of my book, I call out and highlight Black-owned food businesses, people who are making hot sauces or even making knives in South Carolina. This is a day or time period during the year that you can seek them out and support them by purchasing something. So those are some of the things that Black Americans and white Americans can do to observe the holiday.
0: I love how you mentioned the practice of supporting Black businesses How does the principle of Ujamaa or group economics play a role in Juneteenth?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, when I just go to my family or my friends on Juneteenth, collective economics is like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to bring the ice Mm -hmm. (laughs) or I'm going to buy the ribs or, you know what? Uh, We have some vegetarian people here. I'll bring in the mushrooms. I think it's just that simple of making yourself available for the holiday, for the food. I mean, because let's be real, this is 2023. And have you been to the grocery store lately? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's really expensive to buy food. And when you're talking about celebratory food, Mm -hmm. it may be out of your regular budget. So on a very bare basis I see cooperative economics working when people just pitch in and say, you know, I'm staying over later and I'll help you put up all the dishes or wash the dishes or sweep the floor. It's that simple.
0: Yes. Many hands make light work, right? So. (laughs) percent. You dedicated an entire chapter to red drinks. You want to talk about tethered by freedom. The diaspora seems to be tethered by red drinks. <laughs> Your homemade Kool-Aid powder is a love letter to childhoods across America. Could you tell us more about the iconic red drink and its ties to African culture?
1: I love this question. I get this question a lot about tell me about the red drink there was always red drink around growing up in athens georgia in my hometown mm-hmm. like i would go to my cousin's house and it would be a big picture of red kool-aid of course it was like tropical punch and when i moved to new york city 15 years ago and go to my corner bodega i would see dried red leaves which mm-hmm. are hibiscus flowers and I would go to the Caribbean spot next door to it and there would be a red drink. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, hold up. <laughs> like everywhere I go, there's a red drink. If there's a baby shower, there's a red drink. Mm-hmm. If there's Caribbean festival, there's a red drink. I was like, wait, there's a connection here with this red drink and black people all over the globe. The color red is symbolic in so many ways. It's royalty, is Ritual is tradition. And when you go back to Senegal or you go back to West Africa, the culture or the ceremony of drinking red drink is there. <laughs> and that ritual of seeping those leaves in water and maybe adding sweetener or not adding sweetener or adding ginger literally is in our veins. So when folks claim to capture Black people and we were enslaved, you know, from Brazil to the Caribbean and brought to the shores of Georgia, the shores of South Carolina. We said, Hey, where's the red drink? <laughs> so you find you you find that, you know, when you read really old cookbooks and they talk about enslaved people, you'll mm-hmm. see the mention of strawberry shrubs or berry shrubs, where we are making red drinks through shrubs, which is vinegar and water, through the same process of seeping berries, seeping leaves and making a red drink. So that is, you know, something that has never died and is with us through generations upon generations. And I think most people may not realize that across the globe, someone is sipping on a red drink um, (laughs) because there's a celebration or because they just want to, relax and enjoy and be joyful at that very moment.
0: I'm just going to put it on official record that red is the official flavor of Juneteenth. (laughs) We are going to all rejoice in it. And so you tie the red drinks to communion. You call the cookout sacred. And Mm -hmm. you're building institutions out of Black cultural celebrations that we often don't even have the practice of highlighting ourselves. We usually are staunch traditionalists, but we don't really hold it dear because we're afraid of it being minimized right and so what I love is that you liberate us from the confines of judgment of shame of lack of pride and you allow soul food in words of Mike Twitty you allow soul food to be a construct rather than a canon
1: yeah you know I was one of those people who took for granted the simplicity of being a southern girl Mm -hmm. you know all the things that were special about being born and raised in the South, I spent a lot of years trying to run from them. And things like the annual first cousins get-together, where somebody brings the, the deviled egg, or your aunties are fighting over where that punch bowl, who last had the punch bowl. <laughs> or even, you know, not fully being present at the family cookouts. And when I say present, not like soaking in the moments of All the elders sitting in the house Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, and the fan is blowing on them and their their skirt is kind of bouncing in the air (laughs) and the kids are saying, when the food's ready. Mm -hmm. I wasn't fully present, but I've been able to, through my own practice of remembering, to think about those elements and, and write about them in the book. And what I try to do and make sure that I do in my writing and particularly in Watermelon and Redbirds is lay down or put out the traditional Black American dining table. What Mm -hmm. foods are special to us and what foods have always been around that is nourishing and also tells the story of several generations, like the sweet potato, like the whole pig, like Mm -hmm. the red drink, like Ice cream and I use the African American, what I call long table. I use that as a base to create. I like to sometimes say Afro-futuristic or recipes for Juneteenth. Yes. So instead of seeing you know, the sweet potato casserole with the marshmallows on the top in my cookbook, mm-hmm. which nothing is wrong with that, and those are dishes that need to be celebrated. And those are dishes that you can find in my previous cookbooks and many other Black cookbooks that are out. But I wanted to make sure in this book that I pointed towards the future and what we could be while still being rooted in the tradition so you see a uh, sweet potato spritz so you get all the flavors of sweet potato all the flavors of a baked beautiful bubbling brown caramelized potato but you get it in a drink um Oof. so you see that pattern throughout my book where i am taking leafy greens instead of slow cooking them i'm making a salad for you mm. and that all was very intentional because i want to say to Black artists and Black creatives like myself that you're free. You're free. You can, I listen, our crown has already been bought and worn. You can do your thing.
0: Yes, and free yourself from, again, the confines of, of thinking that you can only be one way or show up in one space. And so I think that's what resonated the most with me about this book was just using our complex relationship with liberation and expressing it through food right? And the same elements you had mentioned, we tend to gatekeep our culture through those very (laughs) elements, right? And so this book pulls us out of the cultural comforts and encourages us to create new ones, which is not always easy when we are so used to knowing that this is what an African-American foodway is. How do you view the concept of tradition as it pertains to soul food? And then how has reconceptualizing tradition changed your experience with the cuisine?
1: Exploring Soul Food has made me realize that Black people all over the country have a different relationship with the food of our grandmothers, our great grandmothers, right? Mm -hmm. And that the shame, we have to like kill the shame. There's a lot of shame. And there's a lot of like, you don't need to be eating pork. (laughs) Um, uh, You don't need to eat no collard green salad. It Mm -hmm. needs to be cooked down. And I think for me over the years, I've kind of taken off some of my judgment. And I think that what's so important about our food, black foods and food waste is that it doesn't need to be stripped down. You can tell the story of black people through soul food and it's good that you have that as a foundation, but there are also so many other stories that kind of, if soul food is in the middle or what some people call enslaved people's food, it's all like tied together. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so many stories to be told. We haven't even scratched the surface in cookbooks and or TV around black food. It's black food in Texas. There's black food on the West Coast. There's Gullah Geechee food. Mm -hmm. We are not a monolith.
0: Agreed. And speaking of the food of our grandparents and our foremothers and forefathers, you've actually introduced me to a piece of American food history I've never heard of before, which is the shoebox lunch. Uh, And it's something that our grandparents may know something about if they grew up in the Jim Crow South, because that was what was used to give them access and dignity to have a meal when they wouldn't be served by restaurants in their own community. And you take this shoebox lunch and you shift it from a moment of adaptation and survival and into a celebration, something that embodies our jubilee. How do we share the shoebox lunch in celebration in 2023? If you are a Black person of a certain age, you may
1: not have had the Jim Crow South shoebox lunch, but you had something that was similar. And for me, what I know about the shoebox lunch is two things. Personal experience, what I know is that my mom, my great aunt, and my aunt, in the early eighties. If we took a road trip, there was no stopping anywhere. <laughs> uh, because of finances mm-hmm. and also because of, I think now looking back of uh, we're driving through small towns throughout the South. So that meant fried chicken was going to be packed up. That meant devil eggs. That meant was going to be served. That means pound cake and that means that there was mm-hmm. there was gonna be a cooler of some sort to keep things cool. And when you go back, you know, 50 plus years ago, the shoebox lunch was around because of the things that I said finances, and you don't know where you're driving, but also you could be killed for making the wrong move. Right. So it is important for us as all Americans, particularly Black Americans, to think about as we travel, as we have more levels of freedom to move about in the country, that that wasn't always true. Mm-hmm. and that to to recreate these foods sometimes most times means that we're paying homage to people who did not have the same privilege that we we have right now
0: understood as African-Americans, we are connected to a full-blown diaspora of Black folks across the world. And we often intersect with multiple cultures. And that shows up in our food ways. And one of the ways that we end up finding out regional expression is through seasoning, right? So in the book, you provide spice blends with beautiful ingredients like fennel, benet seeds, cumin seeds, and these are spices and seasonings my Florida-born grandmother never used, right? So could you give us a few things to consider when exploring spices and flavor profiles beyond the usual American food ways?
1: I think that, or I know that,
0: there are a lot of spices,
1: you know, the early 1900s or the early 1800s that Black women and men who were in the kitchen, we did, in fact, use. Dene seeds, which is a variation of sesame, it was meat all throughout the American South, particularly in the low country, which would be South Carolina, Georgia area. You see it in code books time and time again. But I think what happened when we got into mid-century, people started to have, and women were going to work in places, you know, bigger families, more convenience food came about. And so people stopped using a lot of the the herbs that you see or spice blends that you see in the front of the book. So I would say that first. But there are some other spice blends and things that I mentioned in the book that speak to the diaspora. So my advice to people all the time is explore. Most grocery stores now have uh, spice aisles that are, you know, speaking to the diaspora, (laughs) which is amazing. And believe it or not, a lot of those ingredients are things that your grandmama and your mama or your great-grandmother would have in the backyard, like bay leaves. You know, having mm-hmm. fresh bay leaves was a thing. And then people got away from like planting bay leaves all the time, and they would just buy the dried ones in the store or stop putting a bay leaf in their pot of beans when they made them. So It's just important just to remember, just because you don't see it or haven't seen it in a long time, it doesn't mean that Black people all over the globe at one point did not use, you know, that particular ingredient.
0: So speaking back to, like, using things that we normally wouldn't use, I noticed in your book you have a watermelon kebabs recipe with citrus verbena salt, and Mm you had alluded to this story about how you featured this Uh recipe in Food and Uh Wine, and that it made Black folks really uncomfortable. And you responded to the shame and the the fallback of that. And you said, my unwavering commitment to telling our stories of black celebrations can't be canceled. And that, to me, told me a whole lot about the why behind this book. What is the central, most important function of telling stories, black stories specifically through food? You know, the most
1: important thing is, at this moment, I think about the now late Emily Meggett. This is a woman who spent 70 years cooking for white people and her family and people on Edisto Island in South Carolina. And she was able to, at almost 90 years old, to publish a cookbook for the first time. There are so many Miss Emily Meggett all over this country who have gone on or are still on earth you know, Mm -hmm. who have held up our culture and our traditions in a way that most people could not. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the importance of having something written down. When you write it down, (laughs) it's real. It can never go away. Mm -hmm. And so not only am I doing that or did that in Watermelon and Redbirds, I'm also reminding people that joy is, it's our birthright. For Black people, we can be joyful, (laughs) and being joyful oftentimes is sitting around the table just being, and it's a reminder to do that, and it's inspiration to do that, and it's a reminder to really all Americans that this is U.S. history, that equity, equality, and freedom is all of ours, but it's particularly a special thing for Black Americans because we've endured so much and we still continue to to persevere
0: and still continue to be joyful and
1: smile and have a good time. And it's important to do it on Juneteenth.
0: I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Nicole. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much and happy Juneteenth.
0: Happy Juneteenth. That was Nicole A. Taylor. I spoke with her about her book, Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. To mark Juneteenth, Nicole recommends supporting Black-owned businesses, and since this is a food show, I've got a few local businesses for you to consider. Let's go. The first one being, and this is going to be a personal favorite of Chef Plum's, the Art of Yum Yes sir Dante Jones and Michonne Arrington Are the owners of that establishment And they give you all the joy Of brunch and breakfast And lunch without the pretense But it sure looks great On an Instagram photo
2: Love those guys
0: Love those guys Second Samia Please If you are looking for great coffee That tastes like something That your abuela makes That tastes like something That my dear mate That's the place you want to go For your coffee Love it And they are Hartford's Living Room 100% recommend them And the last that I would choose is actually a brand new business. It's the Social House in downtown Hartford. It's a selfie museum and restaurant. If you enjoy having paint and sips or having unique Instagram environments to take selfies in while having a great meal, the Social House is for you. I'm Catrice Claudio.
3: If you're planning a Juneteenth cookout or you just want to make Nicole's Southern-ish potato salad, you'll find her recipe on our site. There's a red drink too, a miso Bloody Mary. Oh, let's go. That sounds great. <laughs> go to slash recipes. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken.
2: And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, get to know the chef behind the restaurant, Cora Cora.
3: A lot of Peruvians say They
5: say, oh, that reminds me home. I'm so like, oh, yes, that's the point.
2: This is seasoned. We'll be right back. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to slash elevating health. Welcome back to seasoned, everyone. I'm Chef Plum.
3: And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken.
2: You know, it's not an exaggeration, Robin, when people compare the James Beard Awards to the Oscars, right?
3: Not at all. The nominees are the best of the best in the food world. Two local chefs and one local restaurant scored nominations this year.
2: The nominees for Best Chef are Rene Tupont of the port Call in Mystic and Christian Hunter of Community Table in Washington. Cora Cora in West Hartford is nominated in the Outstanding Restaurant category. The Peruvian restaurant opened in 2011.
3: I asked my friend and colleague, Connecticut public reporter Mari Carmen Cahuaringa, to help us get to know Cora Cora's head chef and CEO, Macarena Lidenia Jimenez. Not only is Mari Carmen a serious foodie herself, but this is also the
4: food of her heritage.
2: Mari Carmen spoke to Macarena just ahead of the lunch rush, so you may hear the sounds of a busy kitchen. Here's Mari Carmen.
4: Can you start by telling us about your family and the roots of Cora Cora? Yes,
5: my mom and my dad started the restaurant, so I start just working here, like helping them. I was going to high school and practicing some English, so I was just watching the restaurant from outside, but at this time, I start getting more and more invo- involved because I see my mother struggling a little bit. You know, it's a, it's a lot of work for a woman, and she's already in the age that so she needs to be resting because I see her working all my life. So now here that I have the opportunity that help her and my dad. So that's when I decide to talk to her. So she was trying to teach me a little bit at the kitchen, you know, but like every parents, they want, you know, have a curriculum about being a doctor or something else that is make parents proud. But I, I didn't want to leave my parents' legacy that is a restaurant, go Disappear, you know i talk to myself saying you know what is the next step for me to do i need to help my mom i need to help the family so it's, it's it was me who has the pressure, kind of all deciding what to do so it's i have a talk with my mom so we sit down and she said, like what do you want me to do for you you want to go to school so i will help you to go there i will pay all the school for you but I say, no, you know, I, I wanted to Cora Cora last forever. You know, American dream that gave us, my, my parents, seeing this restaurant, seeing people eating my mother's food made me so proud. So I didn't want to go to waste, you know, I want to work hard for this. So that's how I started working in the kitchen, working like regular employee. I wasn't the daughters of the owner working inside, no. So I gained my, my position. I started like being cevichera, I made the ceviches. So I started learning everything because eating and cooking is different. It was hard at first. Everybody inside the kitchen is men. I was me, it's the only woman inside. And they see you different because they think because you are the daughter's owners. So they can tell you anything or, you know, they don't talk to you the same way the others. I feel kind of pressure and I was young at the time. But the responsibility, it was growing for me. It wasn't the same anymore. I couldn't go to have a Friday off anymore because Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it's impossible to leave the restaurant. It's where they need you more here. So I changed a lot in my, my, you know, my, my things that I used to do. But it was for the good. I learned a lot. I pay attention more in the kitchen. I was working with, you know, with all kind of people there, it's not just Peruvian or they are. You you see all kind of cultures involved in the kitchen, so it's, it's more hard because you're thinking because everybody speaks Spanish, it's gonna be easy, but no. So I was reading about cooking techniques and also how to treat people because that's how you gain respect. And something that my mar- my mother always teach me, I have to treat everybody like a family.
4: I want to just pinpoint these two key words that you mentioned, number one, hard work, and number two, legacy. And your family has a legacy when they migrated to Connecticut from Peru. So you guys come from Ayacucho. So I want you to tell me, you know, the essence of that culture that you're bringing to Connecticut. Uh, How was your life in Ayacucho, and how was the, the obstacles, the hard work that you're family had to put on to be able to come to Connecticut and open up the restaurant.
5: Yes. So we live in Ayacucho, but it's Cora Cora and Cora, Cora is a little town. That's how we get the name because they say we're going to bring something, remind us from where we come from. The life in Cora, Cora it was hard. It's like, I can say we live in poverty and you see poverty a lot, but my family, my parents, they always bring food to the table. So you didn't feel like a kid, you, you don't feel poverty because you have the food like everywhere and we have, you know, we are agricultors, cows there, we like potatoes. So you don't feel poverty and you don't worry about it because in like a kid, you worry, just just worry about playing around, having fun. So you don't pay attention in what it really money means. But I know for sure my parents, they always give us the best. And I always see them working really hard. I remember we started getting chicken to the town. Like, if we don't have the chicken from somewhere, then my town didn't eat chicken. So that's how I see them working really hard. And that's how they, they decide to come
4: here because they, they wanted to give us a better opportunity. To- Ayacucho, you know, it's a part of the, it belongs in the Andes of mm-hmm. Peru. And in the Andes of Peru, we see a lot of pride. You know, Peruvians are very proud of where they come from, whether they are from the north, south, or coast, in the Amazon. Do you feel pride of being from Ayacucho? Do you feel you know that excitement that you are here in Connecticut with your food with peruvian food but say i am ayacuchana i am from coracora Cora, peru and i'm displaying that energy and that enthusiasm and that savory flavors in our food here at coracora Cora restaurant i'm really proud to be a coracoreña a born in lima
5: but i live all my life in in coracora Cora. everything i know how the way i am all my manners or are coming from there because they teach you how to be a family. They teach you respect. And I know the riches of, of food that we have. And yes, I'm, I feel so proud to be a Coracoreña. And I'm representing my culture. I'm representing, I'm not forgetting where I come from. So it's like, I'm I'm really proud.
4: You know what, uh, Macarena, seeing your smile, seeing your mm. eyes shining in this beautiful restaurant surrounded by beautiful flowers, I can really tell that you are very proud of your roots. But for people who are unfamiliar, describe the traditional elements of cuisine, indigenous ingredients that are autochthonous from our culture, the Peruvian culture, You know the characteristics of these flavors. What is behind every dish? that you make here. And every piece
5: that we make, best ingredients is love that we put on it. <laughs> but to still be in one of the best in Conarico, we have to struggle a lot, but we make it seeing different using traditional ingredients. What do I mean with traditional? We have to use proven spices Sometimes the quinoa is Peruvian. If we we can buy potato, we buy the potato. But we spend our money goes in Peruvian products. But we make sure we use our own products to make our food because that's how we make how how it's still traditional and being 100% Peruvian. You can find. A lot of spices here but it's not going to taste the same. We make our own homemade chicha morada that is with purple corn and also we put cinnamon but it's not cinnamon from here. We make sure we buy that we come from Peru because the spice is so different. From here it's good but it's too strong different flavor so that's how we you know you get the quality of everything.
4: When I come to Cora, Cora it's not the first time that I'm here. I mean, I always come to Cora, Cora And as soon as I'm turning the corner to come to your parking lot, I see the murals. Mm-hmm. And these murals that are, you know, that resemble of what our culture, our history in, in Peru represents. You see these big stones just like mimicking places in the Andes. And these structures that were built by the Incas mm-hmm. in our culture. Just by stepping in, you feel like you traveled miles and miles away from Connecticut to Peru. It's a different vibe, the culture, the smells of Peru, the music, the sounds, people laughing, people having fun. It's just like a real image, a real perspective of what Peruvian is. And what do you want people to know about your food? And how do you display pride? to the food you're cooking, like, do you have a specific dish that you feel that this is the one that I make the best and no one can beat me on it?
5: Well, I like making everything, you know, all the we call it guiso, we have all the guisos in Peru, but, you know, usually you don't find it anywhere, but, so it's, it's something that when you do it, you're going to bring people to the table. So that's how we added in the menu, the lunch menu, we have some guiso, we have la lentejas, we have pollo con mani, tallarines rojos. A lot of Peruvians say, they say, oh, that reminds me home. And that made me feel so, so happy. I'm so like, oh yes, that's the point. Make you feel like it reminds you because food, food is so magic that you can travel. You can go to back to memories and something that my, my parents and my dad and my mom always say that food is a way to, to invite people to try new flavors, to try new experience, enjoy the time, enjoy the food, have the experience of, teach you a little bit of our culture. And, you know, you, you do it with love, you enjoy it.
3: You're listening to Connecticut public reporter Mari Carmen Kahawaringa talking with the head chef of Cora Cora, Macarena Ludenia Jimenez. Later in the show, Plum ticks another achievement off his bucket list. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken,
2: And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Macarena tells us what Governor Lamont ate when he visited Cora Cora and what all this recognition means to her and her family.
5: We're not just representing Peruvian cuisine. We're representing Connecticut, our community.
2: You're listening to Season on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Season. I'm Chef Plum.
3: And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken.
2: We're getting to know the head chef of Coracor in West Hartford. Coracor is known for its traditional Peruvian food. They're nominated for a James Beard Award.
3: When Connecticut public reporter Mari Carmen Cajawaringa spoke with Chef Macarena Ludenia Jimenez at the restaurant, the awards ceremony was two weeks away and the excitement was building.
2: They'll get to the awards in a minute. But first, Macarena explained why there are hundreds of red, pink, and white roses hanging from the ceiling. To say Core Cora is Instagram-friendly, total understatement.
5: All the decoration that we have in the restaurant, we make with my mom. So we hang flowers for us because we don't need no, no man to give a flower. <laughs> so it's kind of, yes, all the flower represents each of every every woman. And, you know, we a lot and we can do a lot. We are the best creation of the God. <laughs> But, yes, women can do anything. So in my being a chef and being a woman, I'm so proud, and everything that we do with my mom is from heart. So yes, the decoration means that woman did it.
4: you know what? Uh, here at Connecticut public, we are curious always, <laughs> and you bring this perspective of you know woman are empowered Empowering, women can yes. do it yes we are the most beautiful creation <laughs> and that's it's a fact you know <laughs> we can give birth yes we can <laughs> do so many wonderful things uh and what is that essence i see that your mom uh how you talk about her is like a, a role model for you yes tell me how does that empower you? How does that make you feel that you see? And, and, and also, this business, of God is being managed mainly by women. women you yes. have your mom, you have Grecia, your sister. You, that, me, which is yes. the, the soul of this <laughs> restaurant. How does that make you feel like not only for other people, but for other women? Yes. Like you say, yes, my mom is my role model. She
5: represents everything for me. I could do anything without her. So it's like I'm so proud what she did because everything she did without knowledge, didn't go to school, didn't know English, and she did it with my father. But, you know, I see her, like, she struggled a lot, a lot in my country and being here also because they treat you different because you are a woman. They don't trust you the way they trust men. So she always teach me, Oh, you know, you gotta do the best that you can, and you gotta do this, and you can do it. You can do anything if you put yourself on that. You know, you put everything with the heart. So it's like, yes, I admire my mom, and she makes so many sacrifice for me that I can just say, I can, I gotta do the best for me, so yet that she can feel proud of that.
4: That's beautiful. I I just know that this this series of season is going to be an eye-opener for a lot of women that are also (laughs) dreaming about doing something. And I know that if you and your family's immigrants probably didn't even know English in the beginning, you know, you gotta always dream big. And remember, (laughs) this is the place to make it happen. And now, aside from the James Beard Award nomination, that restaurant has been recognized by the Connecticut General Assembly, the town of West Harford, and dun, 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 <laughs> the Peruvian government. Yes. Macarena, this is a big, big thing. This is like winning a lottery, you know? <laughs> now, can you tell me the story of how the government reached out and describe how it feels knowing that your family is representing Peruvian food and culture? to such a degree that you are a source of pride in Peru. We feel like we're famous because we have cameras on there.
5: It was crazy, but we feel so proud that we're not just representing Peruvian cuisine, we're representing Connecticut, our community. So we feel so proud that community is helping us. Because without the community we wouldn't be here because we have a pandemic. You know, we have a lot of struggle before, but having the governor, it was such amazing. And they give us business, you know, it was TV on it, and everybody was here. And so we enjoy in the moment. We're like, we're working, but we enjoy in the moment. We, we're so happy that we have new people that we, we can teach. A little bit more of our culture and yes it feels so nice if we feel so proud and feel so thankful for everything that is happening for the restaurant because like I always say to my team if we win like everybody's gonna win and we wanna still growing and everybody here is growing with us
4: well you just I'm very curious now <laughs> Uh, what did the governor eat, and and in his team, and and what was his favorite?
5: <laughs> he ate the pollo la brasa. We were surprised, was like, oh, you need a lomo or something. But yes, he said the rusty chicken, and he also ate the empanadas. So it's like, oh, okay, the ceviche, the ceviche. He likes everything, and the sauce that we we put it to the table. But yes, he enjoyed all the food. They also ordered some so many vegetarian plates. So yes, they enjoyed the food. We were so happy that, you know, usually they say. No, pollo la brasa is so simple, but no, our chicken, roasted chicken, is so healthy the way it's cooked and it's so delicious.
4: Oh my god, I I'm just imagining myself the roasted <laughs> chicken going through those beautiful uh, rounds and routes, and the braces, the flames, and and sweating all these yummy juices, yes. and the corazos, which is basically mm-hmm. also that the essence of corazos yes. is amarillo, the amarillo, the yellow pepper, 100% traditional dahi, yes. from Peru. Oh my God, you know what? Now... <laughs> I want to eat some rotisserie chicken. <laughs> but I want to ask you this, and I know that you might be, oh, Marie Carmen, I'm tired of you right <laughs> now. But no, one more question. Yes. And I think everybody's going to get like, okay, what's up? What's Let's, up? What what's is next? next? <laughs> Tell me what is next for Cora Cora. So, what if you guys win the James Beards Award?
5: Please, everybody, help us to put our finger crossed and, you know, to be there representing Peruvian community, representing the cuisine, we're so excited. Hopefully we win, but we, like I say, we already win. Having all the community, he's helping us, being proud of us. So that's, that's a win-win. Give us goodbyes because we're so excited to representing our community. Representing West hard for representing Connecticut.
4: You know what? You're already a winner. Everybody that is Peruvian is a winner because of you guys and what you guys represent. And everybody that has big dreams is already a winner as long as you're working towards that. Yes. So Macarena, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and smelling these delicious flavors. I can't wait until we <laughs> finish this interview to eat something. <laughs> but it's it's been a, such a pleasure. I'm happy for you. You know, good luck. We'll be praying or we'll be hoping that you guys bring that prize home in Connecticut. So thank you again. Thank you, Mari Carmen, for coming and
5: thank you for sharing our story with everybody.
3: That was my friend and Connecticut public reporter Mari Carmen Cahawaringa cheering on Chef Macarena Ludenia Jimenez of Cora Cora in West Hartford.
2: Their conversation was recorded before the James Beard Awards ceremony on June 5th.
3: But not before Plum and I finished this episode. This was not Cora Cora's year, but They've been nominated before, and you just never know.
2: They may be nominated again.
3: Fingers crossed. Before we go, there's one last thing to celebrate. I don't know how you are at tooting your own horn, Chef Plum, but I certainly don't mind doing it for you. I'm thrilled to let listeners know that our very own Chef Plum and his production team on Restaurant Road Trip is nominated for not one, but three New England Regional Emmy Awards. Plum, talk to me about what this recognition means to you. You joke sometimes and say that you cook and make jokes for a living, but it's really so much more than that.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that, Rob. And honestly, it's going to sound silly to say it's been a dream I've had since I was in eighth grade. I was a theater kid growing up, and... I always thought how cool it would it be to win an award like that, to win an Emmy or something, and to have this happen right now, to just be nominated, is really truly. I mean, it's an honor. I just feel it's, it's like it's like a pat on the back, a recognition for all the hard work that we put into it. You know,
3: of course. And and when you say "we," who are you talking about? Oh, Who's the yeah, team behind Restaurant Road Absolutely,
2: Start Road Trip? my. Uh, my partner is uh, Dan Fish on this program. His company, Full Send Productions. We've been working together for years. He is one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. He's so into his work and so great at what he does. Um, you know, I it would be remiss to not shout out uh, Jeff Perazzi from my team, uh, aka Chef Jeffy. Jeffy does a lot of production work for us on the show and helps book places. And you know, even when. Somebody cancels 24 hours ahead of time. Jeffy's on it to find another restaurant and get us moving, and he's really good at that. And he has an eye for things, so we love having him there. Of course, uh, Dan Monroe from our team as well. Dan, uh, Chef Dan Monroe from the pantry in Fairfield. He is our culinary producer, Robin. So he makes sure he knows what dishes we're going to make before we make them, before we get there. He talks to the restaurant, makes sure all of the mise en place, we call it, is ready to go because this show really is, it's a, it's a food show and there's nothing set up. There's no, you know, a lot of other food shows that travel around. They set things up. They put a hundred cameras. We go into a working restaurant and we try our best to stay out of their way and focus on them and tell their stories. That's the fun part of a restaurant road trip. Mm-hmm. Also, I have to shout out Alex Cannata. Uh He's one of our camera guys, just does a phenomenal job.
3: I want people to know too that the Emmys are nominated by by peers in the industry yep. voting on work that resonates and stands out from so many excellent TV shows and digital content. So it really is an honor and I just I I want to congratulate you Plum Thanks. and your, and your whole restaurant road trip team.
2: We appreciate it Robin. Thank you. We're so happy. I mean we got nominated for our one of our actual TV episodes that aired on CPTV, a full episode. We got nominated for that. We got nominated for a digital episode. And uh, took a nomination for some production work as well. So, you know, we're, we're excited. We can't wait to see what happens. Good luck. Thanks.
3: The New England Regional Emmys will be awarded June 10th in Boston. See our socials for updates. And you can stream both seasons of Restaurant Road Trip on ctpublic.org slash roadtrip.
2: Wish us luck, friends. I'm Chef Plum.
3: And I'm Robin doyon Aiken. Season is produced by me and... Katie Tolerski. Meg Dalton. Katrice Claudio. Stephanie Stender.
2: Tegan Engel.
3: Meg Fitzgerald. Sabrina Herrera.
2: To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or just follow the hashtag #SeasonCT on all platforms. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Catch past episodes on season wherever you get your podcasts and rate us while you're at it. It helps other food lovers find us. We're back in two weeks with a new episode where I get to forage for fiddleheads with Chef Chrissy Tracy. And yes, my friends, it's as cool as it sounds. See you soon.